0: Well, there was this really fascinating moment back in the, uh, the infamous 2016 American presidential campaign when you know, then-candidate then Donald Trump was asked if he'd ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said, I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and I try to do a better job. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. I don't bring God into that picture. See, I appreciate the honesty there, even if maybe I don't appreciate the lack of theology there. And then several months later, there was actually an interviewer asked him, like, Did you, do you regret that answer? Was that just something you said off the top of your head? Or was that, you know, does that, was that accurate? And he, and he really stood by it. He said, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Now, I could pick on that answer coming from him easy enough, but I think it is actually a very fair and accurate depiction of how a lot of people do see themselves, right? I'm good. I mean, as good as anybody, right? I don't do a lot of things that are, are bad, and I don't like to ask for forgiveness. I don't really, I don't really need to that much. Shockingly, this does not square with what the Bible tells us about ourselves and our need for God, not by a long shot. The Bible tells us that, in fact, understanding ourselves is important because it shows us where we do need forgiveness. And if we don't seek these things, that we will not be healthy and whole human beings. Adele Calhoun, the author of uh, the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, writes that confession may be good for the soul, but it's very hard to do because we are invested in looking like good moral people. After all, appearing good is one of the ways of dealing with the notion that something is wrong with us. We haven't murdered anybody. We haven't robbed a bank. Furthermore, when we do wrong, we we try and fix it. We try and make it better. But, she continues, the truth is that we all sin. Sin is anything that breaks relationships. And Jesus is totally realistic about broken relationships because he experienced them and he was put to death by them. And yet Jesus taught us that the damage done through sin was not the last word on life. Sin could be confessed, sin could be forgiven, and sinful people could be set free. So last month, our theme was practicing the presence of God. So we were encouraged to tap into this traditional spiritual practice and to think of God often, to develop a greater awareness of God in our lives and in the world around us, to set this intention in our day to just... Be present to God as we go through the ordinary, everyday things that we go through. And and practicing this will help us grow closer to God and help us to to know Him a little better. Now, for the month of March, our spiritual practice is going to be self examination and confession. I know that sounds super fun, doesn't it? But in fact, and I think this probably does strike a lot of people as maybe a scary or unpleasant pair, but. This combination of spiritual practices is actually God's invitation to us to enjoy a happier and more successful life with stronger relationships, much better than we would hope for otherwise. Doing these things helps us know ourselves better in order to become the people that we would like to be with God's help. So I'm gonna start with self-examination as we do kind of our intro message to this theme. And we need this of course, because if we don't know ourselves, then we will not think we have much to confess. And Psalm 139, which we're going to read in a moment, uh, paints a good picture about what this is all about. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. And if you want a moment to get that in your own uh, Bible or however you want to access your Bible, you can have a second for that. Psalm 139, uh, starting at verse 1 through 6, and then I'll jump to the very end in verses 23 and 24. So as we've prepared to hear God's word, let us read it together. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then jumping to verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So speaking of practicing the presence of God, see first how the psalmist speaks to God in a way that is so personal and familiar here. And the psalm begins by describing just this deep, deep knowing. The psalmist senses that God actively searches him, looks into his heart, keeps track of everything he does and everywhere he goes. And so he remarks at God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, and that even before he speaks a word, God knows what it will be. And so with this total awareness of, and this knowledge and power, he knows that there's no hiding from God, there's no escaping for God, from God. And so I, I certainly encourage you to read the whole psalm, but it's, I'm especially interested in these last two verses for our purposes today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist invites God's all-seeing gaze into his thoughts and his desires and his motivations. And that, of course, is not for God's benefit. It's not like God doesn't already know all of those things, isn't fully aware of them. The invitation is so that God would then reveal this knowledge to the psalmist. He's asking God to show him where he's going wrong so that God can lead him to a better way. So what are the worries and the anxious thoughts that do me no good and reveal my lack of trust? Where are my blind spots that cause me to stumble into harming others? What are my weaknesses that are holding me back without me even realizing it? Show me my sin, please, God. And this is not a request a lot of people naturally make. Like We ask God to heal our sickness and to encourage our sagging spirits and to look out for those we love and to help us you know, get that job, or to seize that opportunity, or maybe just, just give me the strength to get through another day, please. So to pray, show me my sin, please, God, might seem like really just an invitation to feel bad about ourselves, and why would we want to do that? I think most people would prefer that God solve their existing problems and not reveal to them new ones. But this is kind of like having a really good family doctor who will give you as much time as you want. You can make a same-day appointment. She can order up any test of any kind you want and get it right away. And then you only go and see her for painkillers and doctor's notes. right? No, I don't want an x-ray. I don't want a CT or a PET scan. I don't want an MRI or an ultrasound or anything like that. Like I don't want to find out that there's something wrong deep within me. See, I'm getting along just fine. I mean, yeah, I've got those stomach cramps most days and my shoulder aches all the time and my foot hurts too much to walk any day it rains, but it's fine. Just can you give me, are there some pills to make me feel better? and, And we know that that's a little ridiculous. There are huge waiting lists for some of these procedures because people so badly want to know what is going on inside me so that that can be treated properly. To do otherwise means carrying on living with the condition that causes you pain or holds you back, or it could even mean dying of a worsening disease that could have been cured. So what the psalmist is asking for is for God to scan him, to tell him what's wrong deep within his soul, and that's almost certainly going to find something amiss, but to refuse that self-examination means that the sin that runs deep will linger and quite possibly grow. Self-examination leads us to greater spiritual health and hope and happiness if we're willing to allow that discomfort of having God show us a little more about who we really are. Now, as far as who we really are goes, the Bible does have some sort of bad news we have to reckon with. Because one aspect of who we are is that we are sinful people, often blind to their own spiritual condition. Jeremiah 17:9 and 10 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Right? The heart is deceitful. It's important for us to get this and to allow it to humble us. However smart and experienced and confident somebody is, they are not entirely trustworthy. I am not entirely trustworthy because I don't always interpret what's going on around me accurately. I'm not perfectly in touch with my own motivations and desires. Every single person is capable of convincing themselves of things that simply are not true or not fully true. And when we start to realize this, that what we've done, then we usually we're tempted to run away from that or to double down rather than confess that we've done wrong. We're very invested in thinking that we're right and righteous. And if you don't believe what the Bible has to say about that, modern psychology can tell you the same thing. The Bible really makes no sense if humanity is not plagued by sin and in need of having that revealed by God so that something can be done about it. The word repent appears over 70 times in the Bible. The religious system of the Hebrew people had a major emphasis on bringing these sacrifices in order to acknowledge and atone for sin. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he included, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. This is not a rare occurrence. This is an everyday occurrence. There's no reason for Jesus to die on a cross for us if this is not the case. If we could see our true spiritual state and if we could just overcome that on our own, well, his sacrificial death would not have been necessary. But in order to free us, from being hopelessly enslaved to sin that hinders and so easily entangles us, Jesus laid down his life so that you and I could have new spiritual life, and that new life begins with an act of confession. It's how we start down a different path. First John one eight to ten says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, well, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We don't enter into God's kingdom without confession, without recognizing and declaring, God, I am sinful and I need you, please help me. It's really as simple as that. But that's not where the spiritual practice of confession is supposed to end. Confession should be a regular practice for Christians. Each time we realize that we've missed the mark in some way, we can and should bring that to God. To quote from Adele Calhoun again, she writes, we hand over the pretense, the image management, the manipulation, the control and self-obsession. And in the presence of the Holy One, we give up on appearing good and fixing our sin. We lay down our ability to change by only the power of the self. We turn to Jesus and we seek forgiveness. Jesus, the only son of God, died a violent, unspeakable death so that we could know what freedom from sin tastes like. Jesus lay his power down. He suffered and became sin so that we would not be condemned. Every time we confess how we have missed the mark of God's love and truth, We open ourselves up to the mending work of the cross, she says. Jesus' wounds hold true life-saving power. This is the shocking reality that confession can open up to us. Through confession and forgiveness, we live into the truth of being God's new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And among many other things, this means being as specific as we can. Because I think sometimes there's a general prayer that we do, or even in church we do, God, forgive me for my sins because I'm sure I've committed some somewhere along the way, right? I can't like, bring to mind them right now, but there were some, so please forgive those. That is not a deeply meaningful practice, I don't think. It's not bad to remember that we probably have sinned, but if we want to grow and mature in faith, we should examine ourselves and name those specific sins that we not only want forgiven, but that we want God's help not to repeat, Confession is also a spiritual discipline meant to be practiced in community. Instead of pretending to be better than they are, Christians are called to be people who acknowledge their true state and their struggles and even confess their sins to one another. Someone noted this week that of all the times the Bible calls on us to be certain things, it doesn't call on us to be good nearly as often as it calls on us to be humble. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And this, of course, requires real trust and a sense of security within a community. It's not an easy thing to achieve. But it is a powerful thing that allows people to know one another in a much more deep and authentic way when we reach that place where we can be that way with others. So let's talk for a moment about what it means to put self-examination and confession into practice. And I think we need to start by fully believing the other part of who we are, right? Because I said that one part of who we are is that we're sinful, and that sin affects everything. Your judgment cannot be fully trusted. You cannot solve this all on your own. That is an essential part of knowing ourselves. But equally important is never forgetting how fully and deeply and perfectly loved by God we are. He knows our every weakness and flaw and failing and still delights in us as his children who are created in his image, who are worth more than words can express. And so to enter into self-examination and confession, it's not meant to be this torture experience where we just feel worse and worse about ourselves as we learn each new thing and admit our sinfulness. It should be something that we can do secure in the love of that God in order to see what it is that needs to be changed out of our Desire to be more Christ-like, which is fueled by our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. This is not to say that self-examination doesn't hurt. I think we all know this. When when I know when I realize that I have blundered, when that has caused harm to someone else, that feels terrible. But you know what's worse is never knowing and just doing more harm. Ignorance is not bliss. It mostly makes people not want to have anything to do with us unless they are equally ignorant. Confession is hard, but it is a gift. There is a way to respond to that realization of sin. We're not just stuck with it. I can, I can give it to God. He can take that and make that part of shaping and forming me as he wills. And I can confess to others and sometimes, sometimes break that cycle of hurt and animosity and open the door to healing. As far as practical ways To engage with these things i'm going to list one or two things here now but we'll also put some in my overflow posts in the next couple weeks we'll get some through upcoming messages we're going to look at the ten commandments we're going to look at the stories of jacob and joseph as we go through march but here's two ways to describe what this might look like and i draw these again from calhoun's work where she says set aside some time for confession and self-examination Right? This is a little different than practicing the presence of God. You probably can't do it you know, in two seconds uh, in the shower necessarily or uh, at a red light. You should probably have a little bit of time for it, although I think you can learn to do it faster. But she says, in the presence of God, ask for light to pierce your defenses. And then ask yourself, who have I injured recently through thoughtlessness, through neglect, through anger, and so on? As the Holy Spirit brings people to mind, confess your feelings about those people to God. Ask God to forgive you, and if need be, to show grace to them. Write an apology, make a phone call, or confess out loud in an attempt to put that relationship back on track. Here's another one that's such a helpful cue for us. She says, just begin to notice your strong emotions. When do you feel yourself getting hot, defensive, angry, or withdrawn? What's motivating that emotion? What behavior stems from that emotion? And as you attend to this internal world, she says, ask God what would make, to make you alert to what triggers those reactions. Confess any sin relating to those reactions. Practice noticing your internal world and begin to develop a habit of immediate confession. So a couple of ways of thinking about what this looks like we live in a really artificial world and so some of this seems especially strange because true confessions or genuine apologies are not like a very common thing we see all the time instead you'll see that you know that celebrity who who said something that they really shouldn't have they'll they'll put out an instagram post and it says i am very sorry that my comments were taken out of context by the media and might have hurt some people who were upset by what they thought they heard like that's that's the level of apology we get When a politician is caught doing something wrong, they'll say, well, we shouldn't be talking about what people think I might've done. We should be looking at my opponent who has done this and this and this and this. Like That's how we do it publicly today. We see example after example of people dodging and denying and distracting and minimizing and not a lot of examples of people who will take a careful look at themselves and take responsibility for their part in something. But that really just makes it all the more powerful when it happens. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but back in 2008, uh, Maple Leaf Foods had an outbreak of listeria at one of their meat processing plants. And a lot of people got sick, as many as 20 people died from it. And the CEO of Maple Leaf met with his lawyers and met with his accountants. And then he decided to completely ignore all their advice and go on TV himself and confess. And so he got up in front of the cameras and they produced a commercial where he admitted that he and his company had failed their customers, hurt people, killed people. They apologized. He apologized in very plain and simple language for this and committed to do everything possible to regain people's confidence. And then remarkably, a year later, instead of just hoping that that had all been swept under the rug and people had moved on, they launched a new ad campaign talking about all the things that they had done to try and earn people's trust back, which has, of course, the risk of reminding people of the thing that they'd done wrong, but they did it anyway. And it worked. In fact, many business experts think that that's probably what saved that company from total destruction. As followers of Jesus, we don't have to settle for the superficial. We don't have to do it the way everyone else does or the way the lawyers and accountants might do. We believe that God already knows what's inside us and he loves us anyway. And so the question is whether or not we will allow him to teach us who we are and guide us toward being the people that he's called us to be and created us to be the people that one day in his presence he will allow us to be fully. So self-examination and confession play that important role in this. They're practices that we find in scripture and throughout church history and have been of great value. And these lead to enormous rewards, to relationships that are saved or enriched, to peace and confidence from having a truer sense of ourselves, and God's love for us, they even allow for greater success in our endeavors because we, we become more capable and competent people when we aren't tripped up by our blind spots. So I want to encourage you today, as we conclude, to just to be careful to ensure that when you pray, when you go before God, that you don't just ask Him to fix the symptoms of your sin when God's desire is to actually heal you. Imagine, though, someone who prays, dear God, please give my husband more patience. He's been very cranky lately. And God might respond to that and say, well, your husband could stand to learn patience, but you become incredibly anxious about money because of how you grew up. It drives everyone up the wall when you start to let your worries spiral out of control. So let me teach you to trust that I will provide for your needs or your relationships will continue to suffer. Imagine someone going to God and praying, dear God, please let me get this new job. I really need it. And God responding to that, I'll be with you through your interview. I'll be with you as you wait for word. But you had a decent job and you lost it because of your pride. You always think you're right. You try to order everyone around whether you should or not. You don't admit when you make a bad call. And if you don't let me teach you humility, then you will always struggle in your work life. Dear God, encourage me because I feel like I can't do anything right and I'm letting everyone down. To which God might say, I want to be encouraging to you, but I need you to believe that I really do love you no matter what. Your self-doubt and your insecurity are keeping you from happiness and confidence, but you've been taught that I created you in my image, that I called you good. That I loved you enough to lay down my life to redeem you, and you do more things right than you give yourselves credit for. So let me teach you to be secure in my love, and then you, otherwise, you will struggle to ever feel a sense of real peace. So the question before us today really is this do we want to keep struggling with the consequences of sin, or do we want to be healed?